We're going to be in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 16 to start with. If you were with us last week, we actually covered almost all of chapter 9 in one week, but I told you we're going to spend two weeks on it because we're going to be dealing with this topic of election. It's unfortunately been much debated amongst Christians of how God saves. We have a tendency to lean toward one side or the other in the debate over God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in how God saves. Now, before we begin this study, we have to do two things tonight. All right. The first one is this. We have to acknowledge that we will never fully understand this side of heaven, how God saves people. Go to John chapter 3 real quick. Go to John chapter six, chapter 3, verse 8. Like I said to you last week, if coming out of this study, you fully understand how God saves, I've not done my job. I've failed. Because in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, The winds, wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do, know, do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen closely to what Jesus said. He said, the wind comes and goes, and you don't know really where it's coming from or where it's going. You don't fully understand it. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. And so when we talk about salvation tonight and how God saved and what the Scripture says is his purpose of election and what is election, we have to first and foremost, the first thing we have to do tonight is be willing to acknowledge we'll never fully understand it, and that's okay. Let me prove you an example of what I'm talking about. How many of you, show of hands tonight, believe in one God always eternally manifested in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? All right, good. Of all you that raised your hands, who's going to come up here and explain it to us? We, we can't. And we try to say things like, well, it's kind of like apple pie, or it's kind of like ice and water and steam and the sun and all of our explanations fall short but we don't fight over it do we there's one God and he's always eternally manifested himself in three persons and we believe it because that's what the scripture says and I want to show you tonight from the scriptures that how God saves has many facets but two main parts the fact that God is sovereign and this is his work Yet at the same time, man does have a choice. And for years, people say there's no way they can come together. If man has a choice, God's not sovereign. If man's sovereign, man can have a, if God's sovereign, man can have a choice. And just like we can't explain how there's one God in three persons, I can't explain how it works. But to be faithful to the scriptures, and by the way, you're going to be bombed with scriptures tonight. Get your pen and paper out. To be faithful to the whole of scripture, we have to acknowledge that they're both there and leave it at that. Now, the second thing we're going to need to do before we get started is everybody has to uncross their arms. What I mean by that is this. Whenever I teach on this subject, most often the people that are out there listening aren't sitting there wanting to learn. Their arms are like this, and they just want to know if I'm on your side or the other team's side. Because everybody's either on one side or the other, and their whole purpose for listening is to find out if I'm a sovereignty guy or a free will guy. I'm neither. I'm both. And so first off, some of you will have your arms crossed and you'll say, well, I'll never believe in a God that's predetermined some people for heaven and some people for hell. Well, as you're going to see tonight, when we look at Romans 9, 6 through 16, Paul says, what if God did it that way? What if he chose some to display his glory and he chose others to display his wrath? He could do it however he wants. 
And we have to have that attitude because you're going to see tonight that as much as God is in full control of salvation, yet man does have a choice and we don't know how they come together. There are aspects of it that our flesh doesn't like because it, as much as everybody will hear, not everybody hears the same amount. And some people are drawn more than others. And we have to be faithful to scripture to, to talk about that. So real quickly, go with me to Romans chapter nine. Look at verses six through 16. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, listen closely, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, Like I say, some people sit here and say, well, I'll never believe in a God that's predetermined some people for heaven, some people for hell. The scripture doesn't say that that's how he does it. But Paul says, what if he did? We're going to let that truth sink in for a minute before we move on to the other group of people that need to uncross their arms. Let me say this to you. How many of you, show of hands, had a say in whether or not you'd be born? Exactly. None of us. Yet when we come into this world, we all want to be in charge. We all want to determine how things ought to be. This is God's world. This is God's creation. This is God's purpose. Did he have to save any of us? He didn't have to. But he has chosen, as you're going to see from the scriptures, ahead of time, the only one way in which people can be saved. And that's his plan his way he does it. And as you're going to see, as much as everybody has an opportunity to be saved, he still is going to do it the way he has in mind because he's already predetermined his method and his plan and the one in which you can be saved through. And we don't get to say, well, I don't like that part of it. We have to be faithful and say, God's God and I'm not. And I'm just grateful that he let me be a part of it and it's offered to me. Not, well, I think it ought to be. You see the foolishness of us coming into this world and wanting to determine how we think God should already be doing the things that he's in charge of? Now, there's a second group of people that need to uncross their arms tonight. And those are the people that have already made up your mind what uh, God's sovereignty means. I've run across a lot of people over the years in Christendom whose attitude is, well, if man has a choice, then God's not sovereign. And I believe God's sovereign. So God's sovereignty man, means man can't have a choice. So I'm going to show you from Scripture how God is in full control of this salvation thing. Yet at the same time, man has a choice. Let me show you an example. Go to Romans chapter 9 and look at verses 30 through 10, 4. 
Paul goes on later in that chapter and says, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Keep reading. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit. Did you catch that? They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, go to Matthew 23 and look at verse 37. All through the scriptures, you'll see wording that makes it very, very clear that if you do not go to heaven, it's because you chose not to. Matthew 23, look at verse 37. Jesus has just finished riding into Jerusalem on the donkey on that day we call Palm Sunday. And this is what he says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Don't miss what Jesus said. He said, I wanted to. I wanted to. I've offered. Actually, the Old Testament says all day long I've held out my arms to an obstinate people. If you would only have let me, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. They had a choice. They made the wrong choice. See, because you're going to see from Scripture, election is the fact that God has already determined before the foundation of the world that the only way in which people will be reconciled to him is through faith alone, no effort on their own part, faith alone in the one that he had predetermined was going to be the one who would save them from their sins. And when you put your faith in the only one, which is Jesus, that in which he's predetermined is the only way you can be saved and that by faith alone and nothing you do, you are the elect. You are the ones he's chosen. In Matthew 22, he tells a story about offering salvation to the Jews. And he says, invite them. He sent his prophets and they invited them, but they wouldn't come. They were too busy doing other things. And then what does he tell them? He says, go out into the highways and the byways and invite everybody and anybody to come. And then there, there was this one guy that came in and he wasn't willing to take on the master's garment. He thought his garment was good enough. And he was cast out. And at the end of that parable in Matthew 22, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. And he knows who says yes. Yes, but he doesn't predetermine from him knowing who. People say he does know who's going to say yes. He knows that ahead of time. But that doesn't predetermine who he saves and who he doesn't. See, a lot of people say, well, because God already knew ahead of time who'd say yes and who did. No, no, no. Listen, as you're going to see from scriptures tonight, the offer is available to everyone. He may know it, but it doesn't affect your, your, your choice is still yours. Go to Acts chapter 13. Something very interesting here. Verses 42 through 48. Paul has been preaching in a synagogue. It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, listen to what they did. Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, because you're curious about these things, it means God's drawing you. You're going to see that in just a little bit tonight, that no one even seeks God unless the Spirit of God begins His work in their hearts. The fact that you're seeking God, the fact that you're curious about these things, the fact that the word of God that has been preached to you is starting to spark an interest in you means God's at work. But listen to what he says. He says, you better continue in the grace of God because he's begun a work to draw you. But you're responsible for how you respond to it. But keep reading. The next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside. Who did it? They did. And judge yourselves were unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't that interesting? It starts off with Paul saying, you better continue in the grace of God. Yet all those who were appointed for salvation believed. So which ditch are we in, folks? They have a choice or God's in full control? Yes. There's, stay out of the ditches. The scripture, and you're going to see by the end of tonight even more clearly, the answer's in the middle and how they come together is the same way we can't understand how God is one God in three persons, but we believe it because the scripture says it. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter, actually go to Acts, you're in Acts chapter 13, go to Acts chapter 2, then we'll go to 2 Peter. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look closely at what the Holy Spirit says through Peter as he's being controlled, filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says. We'll start in verse 22, Acts 2, we'll get verses 22 and 23, and then we'll jump to chapter, uh, to verse 36. All right, Acts 2, 22 and 23, again, under the control of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, this Jesus whom you put to death, actually that was all a part of God's predetermined plan. Everything's right on schedule. Oh, but by the way, his plan would be that you believe in this one by faith alone. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Listen closely to verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked and crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, Peter, under the control of the Holy Spirit, says, save yourself from this generation. You have to respond. 
This is God's predetermined plan that this would happen and that we would only be reconciled to him through this one that had been predetermined before the foundation of the world. But once he begins to open your eyes to this truth, you have a responsibility to respond appropriately. And I'm going to break from my notes here real quick and take you to something that God's been bringing to my mind as we've been teaching tonight. Go to Matthew 13. We'll come back to 2 Peter like I had tried to get to earlier, but we'll get there. Go to Matthew 13. I want you to see something from Matthew 13 tied together with the book of James. In Matthew 13, Jesus has just finished telling the parable of the soils and the parable of the sower. And in verse 18, he explains the parable. Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away, listen closely, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Did you hear what he said? When anyone hears the word and they don't understand, they still had the word sown in their heart. Now, put a finger here in Matthew 13. We'll be right back to it. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verse 21. James says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Did you catch that? Everyone hears, even the seed that falls on the path that the Satan will come and take it away. They hear and the word was sown in their hearts. And that's why the scripture says, receive the implanted word. It's the word of God, the living word of God that he uses to awaken people to the truth. They still must respond. For years, people have said, well, if you're dead in your sins, a dead person in a morgue can't do anything. It has to be all done for him. Listen, to the dead church in Thyatira, Jesus said, wake up. Repent. Wait a minute. How can a dead church wake up and repent if they're dead? Oh, because he hit them with the paddles. You know what the paddles are? You know what I'm talking about when they say clear? The word of God is the paddles. And when you get hit with the paddles, you have a choice now. You have to decide, am I going to humble myself and respond to this word? Or am I going to reject it? And as you're going to see tonight, God determines how much of the paddles you get and how many times he hits you. And he gets to do it however he wants. And as you're going to see from Scripture tonight, some people get a lot more drawing than others. Well, that's not fair. Who are you? As clay to say to the potter, why'd you do that? Let's let the whole of Scripture speak to us. Go back to Matthew 13. Again, even on the path, the word was sown in his heart. Look at verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one one who hears the word 
and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. So how do, we, how do we get to that point then that when we hear the word, we understand it? That's what I want to be. I want to be the good soil, right? That hears it and understands it when it's implanted. Well, I got good news for you. Just two chapters earlier, Jesus had already shown how you can be one of the good soil. Go to Matthew 11 and look at verses 25 and following. At that time, Matthew 11, verse 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Listen closely. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus stands there, and he's about to, we'll come back to the verses just prior to this in a little bit tonight, and, and, and he's just praising God for the fact, he said, you know what, this spiritual truth, this understanding that only you can give, you have chosen not to reveal it to the smartest people in the room, but you've actually chosen to reveal it to little children, for this was your gracious will. Folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but if God's truth and his wisdom was available only to the smartest people in the room. Many of us here would be left out, would we not? I have shared with you before, and I want you to hear me. I'm not smart. You may hear me quote scripture, and it's a gift that God has given me. He's put his word in my heart. It's available to you as well, because he's promised in John chapter 14, verse 25, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bring to your remembrance everything Jesus has said. All we're to do is to put it in. I don't memorize scripture. You can ask my wife, you can ask my kids. I don't sit around and memorize scripture. I'm actually not really good at memorizing. But I read it, and I treasure it, and I meditate on it. And he, when I need it, he pulls it to my mind. He just asked me to put it in. But, well, I'll just tell you this. I was good in school only because I learned what the professor or the teacher was looking for. I would sit and listen, and I'd figure out, oh, that's what they want back on the test, and I'd give them what they wanted. I didn't learn squat. <laughs> Some of you go, well, you talk about the Greek word and the Hebrew word. Let me tell you, I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. Oh, I took classes, and I got barely passing grades, C's and D's, but I got through those courses. But how I got through it was God's grace. I don't know how to conjugate a verb, but I know how to study and I know how to read people that are gifted in those areas. And God's blessed that I'm able to pull it up. I'm not smart. If God's wisdom was available to the smartest in the room, I'm left out. There are some of you here that work in the space center. And you understand physics and science and math and all that kind of stuff. That makes my head hurt. I still don't know how electricity works. And I'm telling you, I'm 57 years old and I don't know the difference between direct current and alternating current. I'm impressed that I could even tell you there were two different kinds. 
I still don't know the difference between a virus and a whatever the other one is, Chris. I don't even remember. What's that? Worm. Okay, see, I don't, uh, computer stuff makes my head hurt. Praise God for the people in this ministry, for Just a Preacher Ministries that take care of all that technological stuff so people can get it. I live here. But it's his gracious will that he would reveal it to little children. It's available to everyone. But Jesus chooses whom he reveals his truth to. Who does he reveal it to? Those who humble themselves like little children. Those who are willing to say, Lord, if I'm going to get this, you have to give it to me. If I'm going to understand this, you've got to show me. And I don't have to be the smartest in the room. And I believe that you will reveal it. Doesn't the scripture say in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to everyone without finding fault. Oh, but when you ask, don't doubt. Believe that he will. Humble yourself like a child and believe that God will do what he said he would do. And so when it comes to God's salvation, I want you to understand that you can understand it. Everyone can understand it. But when he hits you with the paddles through the word of God, you have to humble yourself and receive it. That's the good soil. Now, for the sake of time, write down 2 Peter 3.9. Look at it later on. The scripture says that God's not willing for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 23 and verse 32, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, Do I have pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord? No, I would rather they turn and live. And then in verse 32, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. I want them to be saved. Well, if God wants everyone to be saved, why doesn't he just save everybody? Because in his plan, which he has predetermined before the foundation of the world, it was only to be given to those who had faith in Jesus. Not by you figuring it out, not by you being righteous enough, but by faith alone and what God had said in his word. There's only one way. And that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that's it. As we move forward in our study tonight of election, we must be faithful to, to the whole of scriptures, though, and not just our favorite verses that speak to our side. In doing so, you're going to see that no one will ever come to God on their own until he draws them. God draws everyone in some way or another, and they must each decide for themselves whether they will respond in faith to that drawing. But you will also see that not everyone gets the same amount of revelation from God, and each will be judged according to how much light they have received from God. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 10 and 11. Most people can quote verse 10, but they, very few can quote verse 11. Verse 10, Romans 3, as it is written, no one, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Do you see verse 11? No one understands, no one seeks for God. Go to John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. If no one seeks for God... How can he reward those who diligently seek him? Well, let the Holy Scripture show you. In John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says this. 
He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father. Some translations say listened to the father comes to me. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless my father draws them first. The Bible's very clear. Yes, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We would never even look for him. We wouldn't even care unless he begins the process of drawing us and seeking us out. Hits us with the paddles through the word of God. That's the word. Don't think that you have to be really good at sharing the gospel. Tell them what the Bible says. Give them the word of God. That's the power. The power's in the word of God, not how good you are at telling it. But when he hits you with the paddles of the word, you have to listen, not just hear. You have to learn, not just hear. Those of you that have raised teenagers, you know the difference between hearing and listening, correct? Those of you that are employers, you know the difference between hearing and listening, right? Those of you who are married, never mind, I'm not going to go there. But here's what I'm saying. Listen closely. Everybody hears, but not everybody listens. And nobody would even seek God unless he began the process to seek them. That's why Paul said when he saw they were responding, you better continue in the grace of God. God's begun to draw you. That's why Jesus, when he sent his disciples out two by two, he said, when you go into a town, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay there. I'm at work and they're letting me work. If it's not, move on. I'm either not at work there yet or they rejected it. And if they reject it, Move on. Work where I'm at work. And they're letting me work. You can look at it later on. Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 says this gospel has been preached in all creation. Go to Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 5 through 21. Romans chapter 10 verses 5 through 21. Now, this section of scripture that I'm about to read to you has been used to try to guilt you into telling everybody, because if you don't tell them, they may not hear. It's actually the opposite. Here's what Paul is saying in this section. He's been laying out that the Jews have heard, and he says pretty much, I'm going to paraphrase it for you and then read it. He says in this next section, God would never expect anyone to believe in something they hadn't heard. So if God's expecting you to believe in the gospel, you've heard, they've heard the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You want to be righteous by the law? You got to be perfect. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. They were hit with the paddles. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Did you catch that? What he has heard. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's go back in our minds real quick to that section in Romans 9 that gave everybody a bellyache about Jacob and Esau. Remember how God said that to show his purpose, purpose and election and, and to show that his purpose and election would continue before either Jacob and Esau had done anything, good or bad, while they were still in the womb, he predetermined the Messiah was going to come through Jacob, not, not Esau. And then he said, quotes from an Old Testament passage, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And we go, oh, I guess Jacob was the one that God pre-chose that he was going to save him, and he pre-chose Asa with hell. No, no, no. No, no, hang on. Doesn't Jesus say that we're to hate our father and our mother? Isn't that what Jesus says? Does he want us to hate our father and mother, or does that word hate really mean he wants us to choose Jesus more than our parents? We're to honor our father and mother. We're not to hate our father and mother. That word hate in our English has a different type of meaning than what the Hebrew was saying. What he was saying between Jacob and Esau is this. I planned ahead of time to work through Jacob and not Esau to show that this is all my plan and it has nothing to do with you. So I took two twins and before they had done anything, I chose to have the Messiah come through Jacob and not through Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Not I really want this guy to go to hell and I want this one to go to heaven. No, no, no. I've chosen this is the way I'm going to do it. To show you that my salvation has nothing to do with how good you are or what you do. It's all my choosing of who and how the Messiah would come. And you put faith alone in the one I have chosen. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the Jews come to Jesus and they say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus' answer is very clear. He said, the work of God is this, believe in the one that he sent. That's it. That's it. Go to Matthew 11, though. Let's look at those verses that just were prior to where Jesus said, I'm glad you've revealed this to little children and not to the smartest in the room. We have to be faithful to the whole of Scripture. In chapter 11 of Matthew, verses 20 through 24, then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying. He said, I revealed more of myself and my power and my glory. They got hit with the paddles way more in Capernaum and Bethsaida than they did in Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon. If I hit those other places with the paddles as much as I hit you guys with the paddles, they would have repented. Well, why didn't you do that then, God? Because I chose not to. I do this salvation thing the way I want to do it. You will have enough light to respond, and you will be judged each according to how much light you've received. But for those who have received more light, more will be expected. By the way, what does that say about America? We aren't one now, but we were started as a Christian nation. And we've had churches on every corner, and most people in their homes have two or three or five Bibles, and we've got preachers on radio and Facebook and television, and we've got missionaries going out all over the globe from America, but now we need them to come here. And when God judges America, they've received way more light than other parts of the world. Oh, I don't think that's fair. Who are you? Remember, we've got to uncross our arms. Let God do this however he wants. Now, I'm probably going to mess this up a little bit, but years ago, Tony Evans gave a great illustration from the scriptures that I think might help us with this aspect of salvation. But he stood in front of his congregation, big sanctuary in, in Dallas, and he spoke to his congregation, and he said, let's just assume that I offer everyone in this sanctuary, there's a balcony and all that, I offer everyone here a million dollars, and there's a million dollars for every person that will come forward and receive it by faith. He said, some of you would jump right up out of your seats and come running down the aisle and say, I believe, and you would receive the million dollars. But others would sit back and say, nah, I don't think so. There's got to be a catch. You don't just give someone a million dollars. That's not how, you, how it works. And when the service was over, many of you would have walked out of here rejecting the offer. He said, but let's just assume that I then go out into the foyer area and grab a couple of people individually and say, no, 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 come on back. I really want you to come get it. It's real. That's how God does his salvation. Does everybody hear? Yes. Romans chapter 1 says that without, through his creation, his eternal qualities have been clearly seen through what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. And you go on later and it says, although they knew God, they didn't acknowledge him as God, but worship created things instead of the creator. Romans chapter 2 goes on and says, even if they never heard God's written law, he wrote his law in their hearts. Their consciences convict them or condemn them or excuse them. Every one of us is born with a sense of right and wrong. And whether you've ever heard God's law written down, he wrote his law in your heart and you've already broken that law in your heart. And you know you have. Every one of us has gone against what we think is right and wrong. And then Paul says something very interesting. I think it's chapter 2 of Romans, verse 16. 
One day God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Are there people that have never heard? No. They've all heard. Has everybody heard the same amount? No. Those of you that are here tonight listening online or, or here in this room that have been saved, did you have a blinding light knock you off your horse and an audible voice like Paul did? No. But actually, God chose to give Paul a lot of revelation, but he also had a purpose for that as well, and Paul had a greater responsibility because of that. Folks, we've got to stay out of the ditches and just let God be God and get to that place that says, I have had enough light in order to be saved. And the only way in which I can be saved is through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that's it. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's hear it from Paul's own mouth. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said, I had every right to go to hell, especially for as, bad, as wicked as I was. But God chose to save me to show the world that he loves everyone, even the most wicked. What was he doing by saving the thief on the cross? Showing us that even to the point of death, some of you may have an opportunity. It's not too late. Oh, but we've got to be faithful to the scriptures. There does come a point where he says it's too late. Now, I don't know who is at that place, and I never am going to figure it out. And so I'm to preach to everyone like you still have an opportunity. But don't assume you have tomorrow. If he's drawing you, put your faith alone in Jesus Christ. Did you notice how God shut the door on those who knew but rejected him? He determines how much light we receive and determines when the door is shut. We've already looked last week at John chapter 12, verses 35 through 40, where it says they would not believe. Therefore, he blinded their eyes so they could not believe. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to deal with a real tough passage that hopefully will become a lot more clear now. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And then we'll go to Hebrews 6. We'll go to Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, and then Hebrews 6. Two passages that have given Christians belly aches. But in the context of what we're looking at here, all of a sudden, hopefully they'll make sense. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Did you catch that? That's the word. That's being hit with the paddles. If we keep rejecting it, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? If someone died on the testimony under the law of Moses, two or three witnesses, how much worse will it be for those who have had their eyes opened to the blood of Jesus and what he's, has, God's accomplished for them, and they trample underfoot that, but it goes, but wait a minute, Jim, it said it was the blood of the covenant which sanctified them. Were they saved and then lost their salvation? No. Because of time, you've got to write fast. The scripture is very, very, very clear that no one can lose this salvation once they have responded in faith and they've been sealed by God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, Peter says this. He says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us who are shielded by His power. Isn't that awesome? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says, It is God who makes us stand firm in Christ and has given us His Spirit as a seal, deposit, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, say in him you also once you heard the word of truth having believed were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance John chapter 6 verses 35 through 40 Jesus says once the father gives you to me I will lose none that the Father has given me, but I'll raise them up. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work will finish it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that it is God, Jesus is the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 says, Now may your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before him with great joy and without fault, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29, because of time, we don't have time to go there. It talks about how we have not received a kingdom that can be shaken, but we've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So if the Bible's very clear, do you want some more scriptures? Is that enough? If the Bible's clear that you can't lose your salvation if it's been given to you and you've been sealed by the Spirit and given to Jesus, what does it mean then when he says you've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant that sanctified you. Well, it's very important you hear this because those that are on this side of the sovereignty ditch will say that Jesus only died for the people that were going to be saved. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is not only the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen to me very closely. The scripture says that Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid for the sins of the world. On God's side of the ledger, the sins of the whole world have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Now we have to receive it by faith. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're coming back to Hebrews 6. 
We'll get there. But go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Start in verse 18. We'll get all the way go to chapter 6, verse 2. Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18, he says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling who? The world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, their, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in, in him we, what's that next word? Might. Become the righteousness of God. Now, working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Look at what Paul says. He says that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. And he's given us this message now. The message of reconciliation is Jesus has already paid for your sins. Receive that by faith. It's a gift. Oh, by the way, if you deliberately reject it when he hits you with the paddles of the word and the gospel, everybody hears. It's sown in everyone's heart. Everyone knows the gospel. You've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant which had sanctified you. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So if Jesus died for the sins of the world, is the whole world going to heaven? No. Actually, even though for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should perish, but not, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Even though God loved the world enough to pay for everyone's sins. And at that moment on the cross, the sins of the world were paid for. But remember, his plan before the foundation of the world was you would receive that salvation, not when Jesus paid for it, but when you receive it by faith. It's been his plan all along, not by anything you do, but by his grace. And he's offered his mercy and his grace to everyone. Go back to Hebrews 6. Another one of those passages where people try to say, look, you could lose your salvation. No, read again what it's saying in the full context of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
For land that has drunk in the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Look at what he said. He said, listen, once God's opened your eyes, once he's hit you with the paddle, if you reject this, even though you've tasted of the heavenly gift, by the way, those of us, we know there's a difference between tasting and swallowing, right? There are people that have tasted and spit it out. But those who have had their eyes open, who God's revealed it to them, and they reject it, that's it. You better respond while he's still tugging on your heart. Oh, and then he gives this illustration. He said, land, uh, rain falls on all the land. And in some places, it springs up and makes flowers and fruit and good stuff. Other places, it makes thorns and thistles. They all receive the same rain, but how they responded to it shows whether or not they received it in the right way. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's all, it's all been here all along. The gospel's been preached. Have they not heard? They have. If they go to hell, they chose to. God has been offering and holding out his arms, not only to the Jews, but to a world full of people. Wide is the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. Why? Because there's few that are willing to humble themselves enough and say, there's only one way to heaven, and that's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And it's a gift, nothing we earn. All the other religions make you have to do so many things. And even some quote-unquote Christian religions say you have to do certain things in order to be right with God. No, it's always been by faith alone. So God has predetermined that the only way to be saved is by faith in his promised one, Jesus, who came from and through God's election and promises. And if you respond in faith, you're elect. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So what we're going to do now is we're going to close by reading again Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 4. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, sorry, did I say 10, 10 sorry, no, 9.30 through 10.4. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for those, those people, not just the Jews, for everybody, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We'll get into this more later on. But let me just say this to you. If you've been saved by grace through faith alone, that's how you live your life now, too. 
You don't fall back into slavery of trying to earn God's approval on a daily basis. You receive it by faith and you walk in obedience to him just out of love for what he's done, out of worship for what he's done. Your flesh wants to earn it. Could you earn your salvation? No. Because if you're saved, God opened your eyes. He drew you. He made his word take root in your heart. It's his work. Do you get credit because you believed? No. Because if he didn't chase me down, I would have never looked for him. But at the same time, does his sovereignty in salvation, getting to do it however he wants, mean I don't have a choice? No, the scripture is very clear. If anyone goes to hell, they chose to go. I hope this helps you. Stay out of the ditches. Anybody fully understand it now? Me neither. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.